This month on Security Management Highlights. Feedback is often more about the person who's providing it and less about the person who's receiving it. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo explains why managers are moving away from structured annual performance reviews to a more streamlined approach. He said that he was needing a, quote, kick-butt security plan for a medical cannabis cultivation permit application. Marijuana's legalization in several states has left a myriad of regulations to be dealt with. Tim Sutton, CPP, who has written security plans for cannabis cultivation centers, joins me to talk about these challenges. Plus, a report by two members of the ASIS Cultural Properties Council takes a look at an ancient Roman site in Spain dating back to the first century. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stoll, and that's all coming up on this edition, July 2018, of Security Management Highlights. More managers are using regular performance conversations to coach, encourage dialogue, and better motivate their employees. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo is here with The Scoop. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Mark, we've covered this topic before. Bring us up to speed. Why exactly are managers doing away with the structured formality of once-a-year performance reviews? Well, research has now shown several problems with the conventional annual review. One is what researchers call the idiosyncratic Rader effect, and that can be summed up as feedback is often more about the person who's providing it and less about the person who's receiving it. So when a manager gives feedback to an employee in a review, that feedback really reflects a lot of the manager's own biases. For instance, let's say a manager hates lateness and a manager is reviewing an employee who is a strong performer in general, but is sometimes late. The manager's distaste for lateness can really color other areas of the review. Kind of negativity can bleed into other areas. So that's an example of a manager's bias really affecting a performance review in an unfair way. Research has also shown that the link between pay raises and annual review really can destroy the developmental aspect of the actual assessment. What experts say is that when an employee knows that there's going to be the possibility of a raise that's hooked to the review score, they'll often go into impression management mode try to make themselves sound and and look the best they can to get the maximum raise. So as one expert says, for the employee, it can become more about posturing. And that is not a good environment. That's not a strong environment for actual good conversation on performance. Finally, there's another interesting area of research on motivation. And what that has found is that intrinsic motivation or doing something because it has inherent value is a more powerful and productive driver than extrinsic motivation, which is doing something in exchange for a tangible reward. One study looked at a bunch of children enthusiastically playing a game, really enjoys it. Then the kids are stopped and told, continue playing, but the winner will get a prize, often the kids lose interest in the game. Um, And that 
extrinsic prize has kind of hurt their motivation. That uh, is ba- that applies to annual reviews because in an annual review, the annual review takes the form of all your performance for the last year is going to be graded here. And for an employee, that's less motivation than all the work I did in the last year has intrinsic value. And that's really a better motivator. So in lieu of this once a year, like we said, extremely formal update on one's career, what are managers doing instead to engage their employees while also keeping tabs on them, so to speak? These days, many experts recommend one-on-one performance conversations between the manager and employee. They can take many forms. They can be very informal once a month or even uh, once a quarter every three months. And some people are doing these while the company still keeps the annual review. Other approaches are the company scales back the annual review to something more informal and does more one-on-one performance conversations to supplement them. But the bottom line is these one-on-one performance conversations are basically an honest and very much a two-way discussion between the manager and employee when they can talk about performance, things the employee is doing well, things the employee feels he or she can do better, help that the employee may want, things that the manager could do better. Very much a two-way, one-on-one conversation, which a lot of experts feel has many benefits, including a good vehicle for coaching and a good vehicle for, if they call it, a performance motivation. Let's say there's a manager out there who really wants to give up the annual performance review model but doesn't know where to start as far as these check-ins. You got some tips from leadership and workplace communications expert Skip Weissman. What did he say? Yeah, Skip Weissman has a really interesting model for this. The way he formulates it is this one-on-one performance conversation should consist of four questions. What do you think you did well this month? What is something you feel you need to get better at? What obstacle or obstacles got in the way and hindered your performance? And fourth, where do you need help and what can I do to help you? Those are four questions that the manager can ask the employee, but although the manager is asking the employee these questions, the actual conversation will be very much two-way in a back-and-forth model. Under that four-question model, Weissman says the conversation should always begin with recognition of a positive accomplishment that the employee has made. Why? Starting out with the positive is critical for a few reasons. One is that a lot of busy workplaces fall under a kind of unspoken rule that goes, if employees are doing things well, they don't need to be recognized. Feedback is only necessary to point out and correct mistakes. Experts say typically a lot of employees don't get a lot of positive feedback. And that can lead to problems like employees feeling undervalued. But there's other components to this. One is that research shows that negative feedback is best processed and learned from when it comes along with five to seven bits of positive feedback. So the ratio here is that you really want much more positive feedback than negative feedback 
And if you maintain that ratio, the negative feedback is more effective because it's easier for employees to act on it. Citing one 2004 study of teams, the study found that the highest performing teams receive 5.6 positive statements for every negative statement. And as one expert says, it's just natural that human being psyches are fragile and it's very tricky to provide feedback to a person that is useful and not harmful. So keeping that positive to negative ratio really favoring the positive is very effective. Excellent. You've provided a great guide for managers and leaders who are looking to engage their employees in maybe not the traditional way, but a way that could be very effective. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Holly. Medical marijuana has been legalized in more than half of U.S. states, but no two industry regulations are created equal. Tim Sutton, CPP, who is also an assistant regional vice president for Region 2C of ASIS, has written security plans for various cannabis cultivation centers and has found some best practices along the way in dealing with individual states' regulations. Now director of security at Grassroots Cannabis, he joined me on the podcast to talk more about this issue. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. In 2013, you wrote a security plan for a medical cannabis cultivation center in Illinois that was seeking a permit from the state. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got involved with this center and what were the challenges when writing the security plan? I was working as a senior systems engineer for an integrator and a security consultant for the integrator's sister organization at the time. Uh, The principal consultant of the consulting agency got a call from someone who had been referred to our firm by a chief of police in one of the locations he was wanting to operate. He said that he was needing a, quote, kick-butt security plan for a medical cannabis cultivation permit application. said that he wanted to set the gold standard for medical cannabis cultivation security. My boss told him that he had just the man for the job and had me call him. From there, we developed the relationship and wrote the plan. Probably the biggest challenge I had was determining what exactly the state was looking for in a security plan. Security plans mean different things to different people. Came to find that for the most part, security plan for a permit application in the medical cannabis industry is really a security systems plan with cameras, their placement, any kind of electronic access control, as well as alarm systems. Another challenge was educating the client. There was one person in that first application One person within that company thought that biosecurity meant using bio-readers with fingerprint scanners for access, and that's not what is meant by biosecurity, and took a little bit to educate them, as well as develop a plan for some biosecurity, which is definitely something that was a stretch for me. How did you end up overcoming those challenges and eventually figure out what exactly needed to be included in the permit application? The first and most important thing that I think anyone should do in this situation is read and study the entire law, as well as any FAQs that are available, frequently asked questions that are posted from the regulators uh, to give you insight and clues as to how they think, what they're looking for, and how they interpret things, because it's not always the same as what I mean by something. And in this particular instance for Illinois, the application was pretty open-ended, and it left a lot of room for information to be included or uploaded as an addendum, as an attachment to the application. It wasn't closed with, you know, explain how you are going to control access to the 
security equipment. That's maybe not a real short answer, but it is something that is more specific. This state allowed a lot of open-ended questions with basically what is your security plan, more so than just how are you going to address certain issues. One thing that needs to be kept in mind and needs to be found in not every state has this, Illinois does, permit winners will be held accountable to actually doing whatever it is they say they're going to do in their application. So for instance, if your plan says that you'll have a 13 megapixel PTZ camera at the front of your building, you better believe the state inspector is going to be looking for a 13 megapixel PTZ camera at the front of your building. It also led me to a style of writing that included specifics that were required by law, but maybe not actually as specific brands or types or, or some other details that weren't necessary to be compliant so that you're not held accountable to things that may not be the best thing or, or the most economical way to do things. Now, eventually you worked with other cannabis companies. You have experience grappling with the various challenges that come along with meeting industry regulations. Can you tell us some of the roadblocks that, you know, the legalized marijuana industry as a whole faces? And then what were some of the individual roadblocks that you ran into? One roadblock that we ran into in the application process, going to zoning hearings and city council meetings where there's uh, neighbors that are concerned, people think it's going to be the Wild West and it's going to be drug cartels moving in and, you know, sex and drugs in the parking lot all the time, 24 hours a day. That's a misconception. It's not anything that uh, the industry is or anything else. Uh, one, one question that I did pose to a, a very animated neighbor in uh, one Illinois neighborhood was, sir, if this were a Walgreens moving in to this location, would you be objecting the zoning? And he had no problem with the Walgreens going there. And, and in reality, it is the same type of thing. It is regulated as much as any pharmacy is and as certainly as much, if not more, than any pharmacy is. The security requirements, especially within that building, are uh, certainly higher than what Walgreens utilizes. Once we were operational, this goes uh, across any state. The regulators and, and the inspectors that they send out have their own opinions sometimes of what's required or what's needed. And you have to understand that these folks are inspecting a whole new area. You know, medical cannabis is not something that everybody knows about, but these folks have come from different walks of life doing different things, and they're not, when it comes to security especially, they are not security experts. They haven't lived security, and they are operating under what they believe is the way things should be done. Fortunately, we have CSI on TV, and we're able to read a serial number on a, uh, you know, on a fly's wing sometimes, I think. They expect that. As a, for instance, with some things that have been required that, that really just cost us a bunch of money and illustrate that they really have no understanding. So the state decided that their rule that says 24-hour recordings from all video cameras available for immediate viewing upon request. That's the way the rule is written. They decided that that means that the system must record on schedule as opposed to record on motion as everybody had designed their systems. And they also arbitrarily decided that it must record at eight frames per second. So changing 30 or so cameras in a dispensary to constantly recording as opposed to motion, and they're only open from like, you know, 10 to six, so eight hours a day that they're open, but the rest of the time they need to be recording at eight frames a second. It really made a significant difference in the storage space and the processing power needed to retain that. This state has a 90-day video archive. That's Illinois. That's a lot. It really added a big expense. And they, by the way, they didn't do that until 
they came to do the inspections after the building was built, after everything was installed, and you were ready to open. That was the final inspection allowing you to actually open and give you the permit. That's when they decided this. So everybody was affected. And they also added that they felt that that needed to have the ability to see the archive video remotely as well as a live stream, which is a little intrusive and overreaching, but that's what they want. That's what they're going to get. That requires more bandwidth and processing power and, of course, more money. Those are some of the roadblocks and uh, hardships that I've overcome. So finally, Tim, do you have any best practices or takeaways you'd like to add? Well, first, anyone can do security, right? I mean, that, that's the common thought, and that's the best practice that, that I would hope anybody takes away from anything security-related is that not everyone can do security. Alarm companies and camera companies, security integrators in general, do not know much else, and they're, and they're not normally security experts. Uh, they're not the, the, the right people to go ask to write a security plan generally. Same goes for ex-police and military. However, you'll find that the ex-police and military means something to the people that are actually reading the applications for the permits, and they decide that the alphabet soup after someone's name of DEA and, and FBI, that type of thing, it kind of gives the security plan a little more credit than maybe it should have. Another best practice that I've already said was uh, studying all sections of the law and administrative rules. And notice I said studying and not just reading. I don't know anyone that can just read law and understand it. So I think studying it is important. And something I've taken away is that people in this industry are not very inclined to do much more than is required by law for compliance, nor are they inclined to spend much money. And last but not least, every state is different and unique as far as what is important to them with regard to security. So every state's application, permit application, laws and administrative rules are different and they must be treated as such. You have to do things individually and base it on principles that are sound, but they have to be customized. And we hear you're going to be in Las Vegas at GSX. Tell us a little bit more about that. I will, and I invite everyone to come out and, and join me. I'll be presenting Tuesday, uh, September 25th at 2 p.m. I'll be securing the medical cannabis industry uh, from seed to sale. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Well, thank you, Holly. It's been my pleasure. Finally, situated in a remote area of the northern Iberian Peninsula, Clunia is an ancient Roman archaeological site dating back to the first century, complete with an aqueduct, amphitheater, temple, basilica, and more. But with little security, the site falls prey to casual theft and environmental erosion. Two members of the ASIS Cultural Properties Council, Jim Clark CPP and Ricardo Sanz Marcos recently wrote an ASIS Foundation-sponsored report on improving security at the site. They spoke with me about the project. Jim Clark started off the conversation by sharing how they chose Clunia and what surprised them most about their findings. I'm Jim Clark. I'm now with Security Risk Management Consultants based in Columbus, Ohio, although I'm still based in Cleveland. Actually, Ricardo identified the Clunia Ruins site as a potential model, and Clunia is located in north-central Spain. Ricardo sold us on the uniqueness of the site, and it was not unlike many of the Roman sites around the Mediterranean 
subterranean basin, but it was in his backyard, and it was a site that he knew something about and had some experience with the cultural ministry. Of course, uh, he had significant resources in Spain, so that made it much more comfortable for us to do that. The things that surprised me most of all were just the fact that the site in a Western European country was so remote, remote in terms of uh, limited law enforcement, uh, remote in terms of limited support from the community, the country, and virtually no security on site beyond a fence, primarily because there, is, there was no law enforcement support, and at that point, no meaningful security support or any technology involved. I was also surprised by the fact that there were so many resources. By resources, I mean other sites of interest in the immediate vicinity of Colonia. We discovered and enjoyed a winery, a monastery, a 15th century castle, which I could see up out of the bedroom window of my bed and breakfast where we stayed, a 16th century basilica, and other smaller, you know, Roman ruins that just created an opportunity to look, to look at Clooney as something other than a single site. It was actually has the potential to become a destination. And the last surprise for me was the fact that as fabulous as this site is, they only see about 15,000 visitors per year, which was remarkable to me. Ricardo? Yes, my name is Ricardo Sanz. I'm the owner and partner of the company ProArpa. ProArpa means in Spanish protección de arte y patrimonio. I mean, we are working in the protection of cultural properties uh, across my nation. In 2014, the Department of Cultural Heritage of the Junta of Castilla y León commissioned me to carry out a comprehensive security plan for the cultural heritage of the region. I got to know the best examples of cathedrals, museums, library, archives, churches, and sites like Clunia. Of these, there were many who could be protagonists of the Greek report, but the historical importance of Clunia, the impact of the area, the memory of the battles between Iberians and Celtics against the Roman Empire, the creation of a colony, that's the mean of Clunia, that was a reference center in the north of the peninsula. The area is special, Romanesque art, the culture of wine, the landscape, the names of the neighbors. This is important. The names of the neighbors, which are different from the rest of the region, since they come directly from the Romans. Everything pointing to the fact that the start of the project had to be Clunia. But there are others, important uh, sites like Clunia in the region, but I think the Clunia must be the star. What surprised me about the project? Clunia is in the middle of nowhere. This is an isolated area with very little population. I said uh, uh, Peñarba de Castro, that is the town beside the Clunia, has less than 75 inhabitants there. They only have 15,000 visitors per year. Think about in the region we have more than 20 thousand sites like Clunia in the region of Castilla Leon. They are not sufficient resources to protect all of them. But what is there to do? I think it needs to be reinvest as an obligatory cultural visit point in the center north of Spain with an ambitious tourist cultural project. I think this is the only way is to make great Clunia again in the sense and in the way of a tourist cultural meeting point for the visitors in the center and north of Spain. So what were some of those biggest challenges facing Clunia that you found during your survey, and how do you think that they can be addressed? 
first of all, and this was more of a challenge to me than it was to Ricardo, but finding the right people to communicate with in the in the area, in the community. Ricardo, thanks to his contacts and his enthusiasm, frankly, identified several mayors and community leaders that were interested in this project, that were interested in, had a good understanding of the value of Colonia, and, but were looking for some help and support in communicating that to their, to their population, but also in, in finding resources to achieve some level of protection for the site. The other challenge was finding the right people in the cultural ministry that had an interest in developing the security at Colonia. And again, Ricardo was kind enough to make those contacts because of his prior work, but also because he recognized that not everybody was interested and he was able to develop relationships with the people that were. And I think the third challenge was just simply that we recognized when we were on site that because of the remoteness of the site, any recommendations that we made had to involve the Colonia being a self-sustaining security enterprise. They couldn't necessarily rely on the police to a great degree. They couldn't rely on outside resources. They couldn't rely on outside responses. So the plan that we came up with addressed that in terms of some minimal technology, some enhancements to the security staffing, and some sound policies as they begin to develop this site, policies that, that are enforceable and sustainable. So those are the challenges that I, as I saw them. Okay, going further that uh, Jim said, the project crew's report of Clunia was presented to all the authorities of the region and, uh, and the province of Burgos, all the cultural technicians. Everyone was looking forward to learning about protection recommendations of our crew's report about Clunia. The technicians of the cultural must involve, I think this is the key of the cultural uh, properties project about Clunia. The cultural technicians must involve the population surround to the deposit in the management and protection of the Clunia site. They must know how important is Clunia in their lives and how important is it can be in their uh, economic and development. If we talk about security and protection, the only effective and low-cost way is to socialize the protection of the cultural heritage of Clunia. Let all the neighbors be the protectors of the site, knowing what Clunia means to them. I think this is the key, to get involved all the population around, around the Clunia. In putting together this report, you also provided several recommendations for preserving Clunia for future generations, which included getting the community more involved why is community buy-in important for Clunia to thrive? So, first of all, we had to do a little balancing act with our recommendations because the foundation funded this assessment, and they were interested in developing a roadmap or best practices for other remote sites such as Clunia. So we had to address that in the report, and I think we did. But our recommendations were directed at the ministry to support the local mayors with resources to educate the population, the value of Clunia as a community asset and as a potential economic engine for the community. But we thought and, and because of my background in community development and Ricardo's background in financing projects and in finance, I think we, we do have some credibility here. And we saw an opportunity to make those recommendations as well. And, and that's why we did so with regard to how this could be married up with other sites to become a destination, if you will, for more than 15,000 people, for a significant larger number of people to the upper part of the Iberian Peninsula. Ricardo? Yes, I think the more important issue, Clunia, as other sites in the region, is to convince the population, to convince the authorities, in order to create an important cultural point for the cultural importance of the area. I mean, 
is to transform a cultural site like Cunha in an economic site. I know we have a big challenge. I mean, it's the law in Spain. Uh, with the high level uh, of protection like Cunha uh, like uh, has, it's quite important to create a unique model of transformation, the actual situation of cultural protection of Clunia in other different level. If we can uh, convince the political uh, authorities in order to create an important cultural point at Clunia, I think all the, all the things will change. But uh, I agree with Jim, if we can turn and transform the Clunia in an important economical point around the cultural and tourism, I, I think the, the main issue will be fixed. Thank you, gentlemen, both so much for joining us. Holly, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to speak to this issue. It's an important issue in Spain, and, and hopefully the report generates interest and in, in opportunities to protect other remote sites throughout the world. Thank you. Yes, I think if uh, we can get an report like this as and a standard in order to protect another cultural properties around the world, I think the mission will, will be accomplished. This is my mission. I think this is the main thought about this project. And to read the report on Clunia, visit SM online for July. That does it for this month's podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Until next month, bye-bye.